John chapter 3. I think I saw the cases come in. Welcome. All right, you back home on furlough for a short time or just seeing family? Okay, very good. And, and, and a grandchild, a grandson. Okay, very good. You didn't really come to see Ben. You came to see the grand. I got it. Okay, I got it. Okay. Let me welcome any other visitors again. I see several faces I don't recognize. We're really, really glad to have you here this morning. John chapter 3. John chapter 3. Uniquely among the four Gospels, John records events from Jesus' early Judean ministry. After learning that John the Baptist was thrown into prison, Jesus called the twelve and officially launched his preaching kingdom movement up in Galilee. But John tells us, even before preaching throughout Galilee, that Jesus actually ministered down south in Judea. And today's text is the last event recorded concerning Jesus' early Judean ministry. John 3 and verse 24 tells us that John had not yet been cast into prison. So let's take up our reading then with verse 22. And just observe as we read that the reference to the disciples in verse 22 doesn't refer at this point to the 12 disciples, but more broadly to Jesus' early followers. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Enon near Salem, because water was plentiful there. People were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing. All are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Well, let's situate these verses both theologically and geographically. And then I want to spend a little time today talking through John's biography. And I will need to come back next week and explore in particular the identity of the bride in verse 29. The passage is widely misunderstood, at least in my estimation. Theologically, in this section, John offers a fourth testimony to the superiority of Jesus Christ who fulfills and surpasses the Old Covenant. In the first, Jesus offers new wine at a wedding feast which surpasses the old wine of the Old Covenant. 
And the second, Jesus replaces the temple. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the third, Jesus fulfills ancient prophecies of spiritual regeneration through water and spirit. He brings the new birth. That was all in chapters 2 and 3. And now it's clear that Jesus and his baptism surpass the baptism of John the Baptist himself, the greatest of Old Testament saints. So again, we have a fourth testimony now to the superiority of Jesus Christ over the Old Covenant. Geographically, in this section, Jesus has journeyed into the Judean countryside. He had previously been in Jerusalem, where he met Nicodemus, and again, this is very, very early in his ministry. The location of Enon near Salem is actually disputed. There were two Salems in the first century within the Roman province of Judea. There was a Salem near Shechem and a Salem six miles south of Bethshan. And both had plentiful waters for baptism. So we don't really know which one Jesus is at, but he is out in the Judean countryside. And John is actually the only gospel writer to tell us that Jesus practiced baptisms. However, if you glance ahead at chapter 4 and verse 2, John will clarify Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. So that gives you both the theological and the geographical setting. And within this theological and geographical context now, verses 25 through 30 give us John the Baptist's definitive statement regarding his relationship to Jesus Christ. His statement climaxes with the all-important words of verse 30, He must increase, but I must decrease. Now within this context, again, John is giving us his definitive statement about who Jesus is and his relationship to Jesus. And I think this is going to be very, very important for us to really assess our own relationship to Jesus when we set about to minister for him. Now in the context, John's disciples seem to resent the fact their teacher's ministry is waning. They have been discussing among themselves and others Jewish rites of purification. And that discussion sparked further discussion regarding Jesus' baptisms. And with some exaggeration, they claimed at the end of verse 26, well, all are going to him. Now, of course, not all were actually going to Jesus. We know that because in verse 23, we're told John was still baptized and people were still coming to John. Nevertheless, it's clear the momentum of John's crowds was clearly shifting over toward Jesus. So what is John to do? John's ministry was meteoric in its rise. But just as quickly it was eclipsed by Jesus' ministry. So how does John respond And how should we respond if we're confronted with waning ministry opportunities? To really understand John's message, 
let's make sure that we really understand who John the Baptist is. And to do that, let's turn back to Matthew chapter 3. I have preached from time to time on John the Baptist. I never get tired of preaching on John the Baptist. I'm not going to re-preach any early sermon that I've preached before, but I do want to reiterate some things that I've said on previous occasions. Let's really just assess this person, John the Baptist. The transition between Matthew 2 and 3 is quite abrupt. At the end of chapter 2, Joseph and Mary have just relocated to Nazareth with the little baby Jesus. In chapter 3, we suddenly leap ahead nearly 30 years. And here we meet John the Baptist like a bolt out of the clear blue sky. Chapter 3, verse 1 of Matthew reads, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent! For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, who is this? If you're reading straight through the Bible, you come to John the Baptist for the first time, right here in Matthew 3 and verse 1, and you have no idea who this is. Not until we get to Luke's gospel are we given any background information. John was Jesus' second cousin. He was six months older than Jesus. His father was a priest named Zechariah. His mother was named Elizabeth. They conceived an old age after a long period of barrenness. And the circumstances surrounding John's birth singled him out for a very special mission. That all becomes clear in Luke. But here in Matthew, John is introduced to us as a grown man without any preceding biography. He's just there. It reminds you of the way 1 Kings 17 and verse 1 introduced another prophet, another Old Testament prophet, a man named Elijah. Here was the first thing the Bible says about Elijah. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except by my word. It's just like, boom, there he is, Elijah. Where did he come from? Friends, these kinds of abrupt introductions emphasize the incredible urgency of the situation. If you or a family member have been involved in a life-threatening accident and you're rushed to the emergency room, you don't stop to ask the doctor where he went to med school or who his second cousin is. Matthew is really communicating urgency. And notice the first word that we hear on the lips of John the Baptist. It's right there in verse 2, repent. This is followed by a summary of his entire message, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So friends, this is the first great universal imperative of the New Testament, repent. And notice how Matthew's introduction to John the Baptist ends with the last two words of verse 12, unquenchable fire. And let me show you something really crucial. If you look at how Matthew goes on to introduce Jesus and his preaching ministry in chapter 4 and verse 17, he says this, from that time Jesus began to preach, saying, repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
This is the identical message. Canonically, the first record that we have of the preaching ministry of Jesus Christ in the New Testament is right there, chapter 4, verse 17, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. All that to say, Jesus' message is identical to John the Baptist's message. But a better way to say that is this. John's preaching perfectly anticipated the preaching of Jesus. Jesus was not copying John the Baptist. Think of it the other way around. John was anticipating Jesus. Both gave an imperative. Repent. And friends, repentance is a fundamental concept to Christianity, a truth that radically distinguishes it from every other worldview or religion. Christianity claims that something has gone terribly wrong with the human condition. Something is terribly wrong with every last one of us. We are all fallen in Adam. We've been exploring that on Wednesday nights. And we stand in imminent danger of, quote, unquenchable fire. The Greek term for repentance refers to a fundamental change in your heart, a fundamental change in your thinking about yourselves. Do not accept your own opinion of yourself. Do not deceive yourself. Change your mind about your sinful condition. Repent. In 1 John 1 and verse 8, we are told it is indeed possible to deceive ourselves. And in that context, John says that if we claim that we have not sinned, if you say that, then you make God a liar. So friends, God says you have sinned. And if you are a self-righteous, unrepentant person, then you've got one of two options. Either God is a liar or you are. Either God is a liar or you are because God has said you have sinned. All right, well then why should we repent? Well, in the context, here's the reason the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And what is that? Well, this is a rather enormous concept in the Gospels that I will not fully develop this morning. But let me just point out three things by way of summary here. First of all, when you think about God's kingdom, do not think about a geopolitical organization of people together with a military in a clearly defined border. Not a country. Don't think of a realm, but think of a rule. The rule of God in a person's life. That's the emphasis. Second, the doctrine of the kingdom is indeed seen in the Old Testament but there was an explosive new emphasis on it when you come to the New Testament. And that's because the king has come visibly into history. The visible appearing of the king is what is meant by the phrase, is at hand. The verb translated is at hand is in the perfect tense in Greek. What that means is it doesn't mean the kingdom is getting closer and closer. It's kind of still on the way. It's not what it means. It means it's arrived. It's here. It's arrived. The kingdom has come. Why? Because the king has come. The king has arrived. And thirdly, the kingdom refers to God's rule. 
refers to the fact that God is taking control here. God is asserting his ownership of human history. God is reclaiming what was lost in the Edenic rebellion. So when you put all that together, John the Baptist preached that God's rule has broken visibly into human history in the person of Jesus Christ. And you need to just change your mind about Jesus and follow him immediately. No hesitations, friends. No qualifications. Don't bring your own agenda. Give up your own self-rule. Repent and arrange yourself under Christ's authority. And if you are unwilling to embrace John's imperative, well, guess what? Jesus preached the same message. And that brings us now to verses 3 and 4, where we are given just a few pieces of information about John the Baptist. But again, don't forget the priority sequence. Matthew emphasized John's message before he told us anything about the messenger. The message is more important than the messenger. The first thing we learn about John is that Isaiah predicted the coming of a person whose message was indeed more important than his person. That's verse 3. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Isaiah didn't even predict a prophet would prepare us for the coming of the Lord. However, Isaiah clearly emphasized the voice, John's voice. It's right out there in the front. When Isaiah emphasizes the voice of John, clearly we need to pay attention to what John actually says. And friends, if you want to be a voice for Christ, John is a very good example to emulate. So what did John actually say? Well, Matthew's gospel emphasizes how completely John the Baptist spoke for Christ. And I did emphasize this in an earlier sermon, I think it was back in September, but I want to just reiterate this very quickly. I want to show you very quickly six parallels between John's message and Jesus' message. Already in verse 2, we discovered that John's message was identical to Jesus' in chapter 4 and verse 17. Same message. Then in verse 7, John uses the metaphor of vipers to describe Jewish leaders. Many of the Pharisees and Sadducees were actually false teachers, despite having been immersed in the Old Testament scriptures. Well, in Matthew 12 and verse 34, after the Pharisees accused Jesus of casting out demons by Beelzebub, guess what? Jesus uses the identical metaphor. Jesus calls the leaders a generation of vipers. That's what John said. Then look at verse 8. John speaks of the necessity of producing good fruit. Well, guess what? Jesus uses the identical image in Matthew 7 and his concluding appeal to the Sermon on the Mount. Then in verse 9, John rejects Jews' false pride in Abraham as their father. He claims that God can raise up true children to Abraham from stones or from non-Jewish sources. And really, you can see the same thing in the ministry of Jesus in Matthew 8. 
Jesus says, Abraham is children by birth, will be thrown out of the kingdom. But others from the east and the west will be gathered in as children of Abraham. Then in verse 10, John refers to the complete destruction of the tree that does not produce good fruit. And Jesus uses the same metaphor almost verbatim in Matthew 7. And he later goes on to curse the fig tree, symbolizing the Jewish leadership. Then in verse 12, John refers to the true wheat being separated out from the chaff. And in Matthew 13 and verse 30, Jesus will use the same image of separating the tares from the wheat in the kingdom. When you put all that together, it's very intriguing, is it not? In 12 verses, we have six indications of just how closely John's speaking ministry anticipated the ministry of Jesus. John's preaching really did anticipate the preaching of Jesus. John was a voice for Christ. That's what mattered. John's mission was to speak the way that Christ would speak. And friends, is that not a marvelous lesson for all who would teach and preach God's word? What would Jesus say? Can I just approximate the voice of Jesus? What a lesson for parents discipling their children. If Jesus were raising your children, how would he instruct them? Matthew clearly wants us to know that John the Baptist's whole ministry just anticipated the ministry of Jesus Christ. And that's why the remainder of verse 3 reads, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. And the imagery here is probably one of making a road smooth. When royalty traveled, people were sent ahead to fix all the potholes. Make a smooth road. That's the idea. Prepare for the king. Don't allow any obstacles to come between Jesus and his people. Eliminate every roadblock and let people just come straight to Christ. That's your job whenever you speak for Christ. And given all that, it seems to me that John's distinguishing characteristic was one of selflessness. A truly selfless person. John's biographical details, his background, his qualifications are largely irrelevant to Matthew. He's a voice, anticipating a greater voice to come. I can say it this way, John the Baptist has no independent agenda. He has no selfish ambitions in ministry. He has no desire for an independent following. He is not an empire builder. I suspect that he would cringe if he set about to name a building or a ministry or a whole denomination after him. If John the Baptist were part of our church today, his voice would just go right on, just point us to Jesus Christ. Just keep on looking at Jesus. And friends, what if we had a whole church like that? That really needs to be the goal of every one of us, whether we teach, preach, give public testimony, sing, read scripture, whatever we do, just conversing with somebody in the lobby, anyone who hears us should just be able to look right beyond you and find Christ. That's why we're here. 
if the University Baptist Church really is going to have any future, in fact, if any church is going to have any real future, it will always be in spite of us and not because of us. All right, the Lord can use us if we are humble and broken. We just keep on pointing people to Christ. Personal ambition, self-aggrandizement, self-promotion, advancing your own agenda, all that just kills the ministry. It really does. Now let's consider for just a moment John's distinctive activity, which you read about back in John chapter 3. All right, let's consider his baptisms. Now, the word Baptist was not John's last name, all right? Nor was it a name for our denomination today. We don't trace our denomination back to John. Oh, some try to do that, but it's, that's a whole other story, all right? We know him as John the Baptist, though, because this really was his distinct activity. He baptized people in preparation for greeting their Messiah. And in verse 6, we learn that people flocked out to see John in the wilderness. And there we read, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, what exactly is this baptism? Well, just like John, baptism also shows up rather abruptly in the Bible. In the text, The only hint that we get regarding the meaning of this baptism is found in verse 11. Let's look at verse 11. John says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So what does that mean? Well, the passage gives us two suggestions regarding the significance of his baptism. First of all, clearly John associates baptism with repentance, repentance from sin. John's message was to call people to repentance. And baptism was an indication that people had just changed their minds, that they were willing to embrace the king. They submitted themselves to baptism. And secondly, John's baptism pointed to an even greater baptism, the baptism of the Holy Ghost and fire. John regarded himself as not even being worthy to perform a menial task, carrying the shoes for one that is mightier, who is to come. This one brings a greater baptism. And we know from subsequent New Testament revelation what this second baptism is. The Holy Spirit, we are told, came on the disciples at Pentecost. When he came on the disciples, there were these little cloven tongues of fire that appeared in their heads. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 13 that through the baptism of the Holy Spirit, We are placed into Christ's body. We are placed into the church. So John's mission then was to call men and women to repentance. And they express that through baptism. That repentance again was symbolized in their baptism. Their cleansing. And this baptism then put them in a state of expectation. Where they are waiting for the one who's coming. To give us the spirit of Pentecost. Anticipates that. 
Now, there's a third distinct characteristic of John's baptism that I should point out at this point. We do know from intertestamental sources that the Jews also practiced baptism. In fact, long before John the Baptist brought it. In fact, you go back a couple hundred years in Jewish sources, and they were already practicing these baptisms. Archaeological evidence has pointed to large immersion pools found right at the south end of the Temple Mount. And the Jews, we are told from our sources, practice baptism on proselytes. That is to say that if you converted to Judaism, you were baptized. If a Gentile were to be introduced to the Jewish faith, he would submit himself to baptism to become a member of the community. All right? But here's where John's baptism became so controversial. John applied it to the Jews. Wait, this is for Gentile proselytes. No, John says, you Jews need to be baptized. In verse 5, we read of the Jews of Jerusalem, Judea and Jordan, all right, that's the region, flocking out of the Jordan. These Jews are coming to be baptized. And John's baptism creates this great consternation among the Jewish leaders. And that's why in verse 7, we discover the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming out to investigate, like, what's going on here? Why is he baptizing the Jews? Typically, the Pharisees and Sadducees did not get along very well. But apparently, they were able to get a delegation together and to go investigate John's baptisms. And John responds to their coming in a very harsh way in verses 7 and 8. You brood of vipers. What you need to do, he says in verse 8, is to repent. And produce good works. In other words, you ought to be baptized too. You need to repent of your own sins. So to summarize all that, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. It symbolizes the person really has repented. Number two, John's baptism was a baptism of preparation for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And thirdly, John's baptism was a call to the Jews or to self-righteous people to repent. All of us need to repent, John says. And with that in place, let's turn now to Luke chapter 3. And I want to pick up just one additional piece of information about John. And then we will turn at long last back to John chapter 3. Luke chapter 3 now. And let's say just a word about the chronology of John's ministry. Working out the chronology of the New Testament actually is a rather complex task that involves collating between a variety of different calendars and sources and reigns of various princes. Dates were not standardized in the first century the way they are today. Nevertheless, we can speak with some general accuracy about the timing of John's ministry, and that's largely due to the precision of Luke. Historians like Luke, right? Luke is a historian, and he knows, okay, you've got to get these things dated properly. All right, so look at chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Luke is going to date the beginning of John's ministry. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturium and Trachonitis, 
and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went to all the region around Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. All right, in these verses, Luke references seven rulers and priests. Again, in the ancient world, there was no standardized calendar. So the common practice among historians was to date events to the reigns of various kings. And what Luke is doing here is really making an effort to be just as precise as possible. And I'm really glad he does that because it gives us some really significant insight into the ministry of John the Baptist. I won't go through all the dates here, but let me just point out that Tiberius Caesar, who is mentioned there in verse 1, reigned from the year 14 to 30 A.D. However, he was also a co-regent with his adoptive father, Augustus, from the year 12 A.D. So when Luke refers to the 15th year of Tiberius, he's probably counting from the year 12 A.D. This is following the standard practice. So depending on how much of the year 12 is counted, 15 years in verse 1 takes us to the year 26 or 27 A.D. Right in there. Now Robert Thomas and Stanley Gundry in their Harmony of the Gospels, which many of you purchased, I'm glad, placed the beginning of John the Baptist's ministry at the tail end of A.D. 26 or the beginning of A.D. 27. Right in there probably sometime during the December-January time period. And this really is a mere matter of months before Jesus Christ's public ministry begins. Jesus' baptism and temptation in the wilderness occur in the late spring or early summer of A.D. 27. In other words, John the, Baptist, or John the Baptist's baptism of Jesus occurs maybe five to six months after the commencement of his own ministry. Okay? John the Baptist goes out, he begins to baptize, begins to minister. Five or six months later, Jesus comes on the scene and is baptized. Okay, now I'm not going through all the details of the chronology, but I'm just giving you that much. With all that in place, let's turn back to John chapter 3. I want you to follow this very carefully because it really is crucial. After his baptism, and of course his temptation, Jesus traveled to Galilee. We saw that earlier in John's gospel. He actually reconnected with John briefly and then went up into Galilee. And up there in Galilee, he performed his first miracle at Canaan. After that, we are told that he returned back down to Judea. And commentators refer to this period as the early Judean ministry of Jesus. And again, it's John who tells us about that early Judean ministry. It was during this time period that Jesus encountered Nicodemus, which we read about in chapter 3. All right? Now in John 3, in verse 22, after encountering Nicodemus, here's what we read. Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside... And he remained there, we're not told how long, but he remained there with them and was baptizing. 
All right? And we know this from John's gospel. We don't know this from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So Jesus is out there. This is part of the early Judean ministry. He's baptizing out there, or his disciples are baptizing. But what was it that prompted Jesus to move back up to Galilee? We are back in Matthew 4, verse 17, when Matthew said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was the beginning of Jesus' Galilean ministry. What prompted Jesus to leave Judea and go back up north to Galilee and officially launch his preaching kingdom ministry? Well, the answer is right there in verse 12. I'm sorry, Matthew 4 and verse 12. You're in, you're in John 3. Matthew 4 and verse 12 tells us this. Now, when he heard, that's Jesus, when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. Again, this is very early in Jesus' ministry. In fact, most of what is recorded in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke in particular, follows John's imprisonment. Jesus officially calls his 12 disciples and goes around through Galilee preaching the kingdom only after John is imprisoned. And in fact, the threat of execution lives over the majority of his ministry. We don't often appreciate this, but Jesus was always in a dangerous situation whenever he came down to Jerusalem. All right? So, with all that in place, let me just summarize then John's ministry. John is six months older than Jesus. For 30 years, he has lived in relative obscurity. He's waiting for his ministry opportunity, for his calling. He has lived the life of a rugged desert nomad. He prepares to boldly preach the coming of the king. And suddenly, we don't know why, but John goes out preaching. Apparently God said it's time. He goes out preaching, and his fame is just meteoric in its rise. The crowds come flocking to his baptisms, large crowds, and they're repenting of their sins. And six months later, maybe even five months later, John's second cousin lays down his carpenter tools. He travels 70 miles south to present himself for baptism. John baptizes the king. And suddenly, his ministry wanes. Verse 26, end of the verse. Look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. Well, how will John respond? The crowds are already dwindling. Okay, so John baptizes Jesus. Forty days in the wilderness, Jesus goes back up north and turns around and comes back south. And all of a sudden, people leave John. They're going after Jesus. They're all going after Jesus now. Well, what's he supposed to do? Within a matter of months, from this point, verse 26, John's whole mission, his preaching ministry, everything that he prepared for for 30 years, it's all done. It's all over. And he is thrown in the prison. And Jesus disappears back into Galilee. This, this must have been an incredibly surreal moment. Like, what even happened? It's all over. And John is locked away in a dang prison cell awaiting execution. 
His ministry lasted for probably less than a year. Think of that. It's all over. John, your ministry is done in less than a year. Josephus tells us that John was in prison in the fortress of Machaerus, east of the Dead Sea. The desert climate there was oppressively hot, and food in that region is very scarce. This would have been a terrible assignment for a guard, much less for a prisoner. And doubtless, restless guards would have beaten out their frustration on their prisoners. John actually may have spent more time in prison than he did in public ministry. And we all know his fate. He was violently terminated at a vulgar birthday feast. So friends, can we just let all that background just pressurize the way that we read our text? When John learned that his ministry was waning and people were following Jesus, after a mere months, he responded in verse 27, John answered, a person can receive, cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. What is he referring to? He is clearly referring to his own ministry of preaching and baptism. Look, John, your ministry is being replaced. Well, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. God gave him his ministry, and John knows God can just as quickly take it, take it away. But John understands, I'm, I'm just the voice. I'm just here to point people to Christ. The king has arrived. Well, go follow him. So friends, what really is the lesson? Here's a lesson for us. Your ministry is not your own. How quickly do we use the word my? I was thinking about that this week. The word my with ministry. You know, friends, it's not my ministry. It's not your ministry. It's not my mission. It's actually not my calling. I mean, the Lord does call individuals, but it's not mine in a possessive sense. Friends, this is not my pulpit up here. UBC is not my church. I get really annoyed when pastors use possessive pronouns to refer to the church as a pastor. I know they don't mean it that way, but it's not my church. This is Christ's church. This is Christ's ministry. We are not entitled to any ministry whatsoever. God may give you 60 years and he may give you six months. It all belongs to him. It really is his. And truly, God does not think about, the t- about time the way we do. We so often treat ministry as if it's our own prerogative. And the longer we stay at it, the more faithful or more important we supposedly are. Really? I've known pastors who preach well into their 70s or even 80s. And there may be a place for that. Don't misunderstand. But that also may indicate a false philosophy of ministry. Some of them should have retired a decade earlier. Your church does not belong to you. Maybe you should just get out of the way and let somebody else take your class or take your pulpit or take your responsibilities. Don't anyone ever name a building or a room or anything in this church after me. If you do, I will come burn it down. 
I was thinking this morning about Jonah. And of course, Joseph read from Jonah this morning. Do you realize the most successful sermon in the Bible was an eight-word sermon preached by a grumpy, suicidal, cantankerous, bigoted preacher puked up by a whale? I mean, seriously, it's got to be the most successful sermon in all the Bible. Everybody repents. Like, God doesn't even want to preach. God doesn't need you. If he can use Jonah, he can use anybody. He can use Balaam's donkey, for that matter, if he needs to. So our job is just to be a voice for Christ. That's the point. Now, friends, there is indeed mystery in the ways of God. Why did he give John only a year or less after 30 years of preparation? Why was James the Apostle martyred in Jerusalem and his younger brother John given another 50 years of ministry? Explain that one. Why was Stephen martyred and Peter miraculously released from prison? Why was John Huss burned at the stake in Bohemia for preaching the same doctrines that Luther preached? Luther fell under the same sentence of condemnation that Huss did. Same sentence. And he went on preaching another 25 years. Explain that. Why was Jim Elliot speared to death on a beach in Ecuador and his four fellow missionaries along with him? And then God gave Hudson Taylor and William Carey decades of ministry. Explain that. I don't understand all that. If our approach to the ministry is, well, this is my ministry and my mission and my calling, and if ministry success is measured in longevity, well, then John the Baptist, Stephen, the Apostle James, John Huss, Jim Elliot, they were all failures. If it really comes down to longevity, they were all failures. What if we looked at our lives and our service the way John does in verse 27? A person cannot receive even one thing, his own ministry, unless it is given him from heaven. God calls some to preach for years and years, and God calls others to preach once or twice. I was reading this last week about Ananias. We know that he was instrumental in bringing Paul to Christ. Well, what else did he do? I have no idea. Well, God may call you to reach Paul, or God may call you to be Paul. Either way, it's God's ministry. And when we adopt that perspective, then we can indeed confess with John in the words of verse 28, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. Friends, that's the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Just go follow Christ. My calling is not to build a ministry empire around myself. My calling is not to leave my name on buildings. Our job is simply to point people to Christ. John, as we know, accomplishes in death as well as life. And so too did Stephen and James the Apostle and John Huss and John Eliot. They were preaching Christ even in their deaths. And did you notice the way John responds almost with a tone of sarcasm in verse 28? If you thought John was going to be jealous of Jesus' fame, well, John says, I told you I am not the Christ. Like, didn't you listen to me? But I have been sent before him. And John continues now in verse 29, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. 
Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. And isn't that truly marvelous? Now, I will return to the identity of the bride next week. But for now, just notice that John's whole passion was to point people to Christ. Again, he has no independent agenda. He seeks no glory for himself. He is merely a voice anticipating the voice of Christ. And indeed, if Christ has arrived, well, then let people go. Go follow Christ. If the Lord called him to labor for a year, so be it. He's just a voice for Christ. And notice how verse 29 ends. It ends with a sense of completion. Here's a man who's nearly 15 years younger than me. It ends with a sense of completion. John has preached for less than a year at this point, and people are running off after Christ. Wonderful. Great. My work is done. So what if indeed John's attitude was the attitude of every preacher, every teacher, every layman, and anyone who ever ministered for Christ? Can we just zoom in on these words in verse 30 and let them be our prayer this morning? He must increase, but I must decrease. Shall we pray? Father, we ask that Jesus would increase. We ask, Lord, that we would decrease. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen.